Now, brothers and sisters, I will encourage you to open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians once again, where we will be jumping into chapter 2 to take a look at verses 11 through 12, or excuse me, 22. So this can be found if you're looking for it on a page 1160, I believe, of your Pew Bibles. And so, over the course of the past couple of weeks here at Almond Valley, really since the beginning of the summer season, uh, we've been plotting our way through this New Testament book of the Apostle Paul as he's uh, trying to show us and help us to dig into the wealth of riches uh, of the grace of the Lord and all of the sort of great truths and the realities that we as the church need to know, to know not only what our calling is in this world, our mission, but to know also who we are, the most fundamental question of all. And that's really the main point of this whole letter. It's why I've subtitled the series, The Identity and Mission of the Church. That's really, I think, what Paul is driving at throughout this whole letter. He's trying to help these fledgling Christians in the city of Ephesus, a city well-known, as we've seen, for its paganism and its occultism, its worship particularly of the goddess Artemis. And he wants them to, to see a fuller and grander picture of who they are in Christ. And so we could say that perhaps Ephesians is really the exemplary or the preeminent letter of the entire New Testament, really the whole it's the book of the old, whole uh, Bible that teaches us what we might call ecclesiology, which is just a fun way of saying the doctrine of the church. That comes from the Greek word ekklesia. So the ecclesiology means the doctrine of the church. Paul is teaching us here who the church is and what we are called to be about. Now, as we've seen, as working our way through this letter, I've tried to point out that there are a few themes that will recur again and again as we go through it. And these themes are, of course, the gospel. He's wanting to make this clear to us. Secondly is the Jew-Gentile hostilities uh, that are existing in Ephesus between the Jews and the Gentiles who are there. And finally, then, uh, the powers of spiritual darkness. Paul wants us to make note of the existence of them and how we are to live in light of these powers. Now, in pointing these three out, I'm not suggesting that these are the only three themes of the book, but I think that they are important themes, themes that I would say are, in fact, the main ones. But it may also be helpful for me to point out that as you might expect, the gospel is the central theme of the three. Uh, and really, uh, Paul explores how the gospel directly affects both the Jew-Gentile hostilities and also the powers of spiritual darkness. And we could put this another way. We could say that for Paul, the gospel, the good news of our reconciliation in Christ that has been made by faith, it beautifully displays God's power... And it beautifully displays his power against the powers of the spiritual realm, as we've seen, through the creation and construction of the church. So he creates the church, and as we saw last week, the church is his masterpiece. The church is his grand creation, his work of art, through which he shows his power and his grace for all time. He's made us alive. He has raised us and seated us with Christ by grace through faith. It's not our own doing. 
And so it's displaying God's power, but also he, de- he displays his power and his grace now, as we'll see in this morning's passage, by reconciling Jews and Gentiles, bringing these two people together into one body. And this is a lot to take in. And I think this is why, even for Paul, it seems as though his, his pencil is creating a little bit of smoke as he's writing furiously and excitedly through this letter. You can sense his passion and his zeal. It's really complex, but he's trying to help us see some really important truths in a concise way. So I'll just try to make today's passage absolutely clear to you. Uh, I could almost just sort of walk away after saying this, because this is really what he's saying. So Paul is simply saying one of the most spectacular ways that God displays his glory through the church is by reconciling and reuniting seemingly irreconcilable and irredeemable and incompatible categories of people. So they seem like they can't come together, but God, in fact, displays his power in showing that not only can they, but they have now in Christ. And so last week we saw he displayed his power over those powers of darkness. Now we see how he does something that we as humans hardly thought possible. And so having already prayed this morning for the illumination of God's word, let's turn now, brothers and sisters, and hear the word of the living God from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore... Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world." But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, But you are also fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know about you, but I love a sort of nothing is impossible kind of movie. A a story where something that was once actually believed by all to be impossible, finally not just only becomes possible, but becomes real and actual. 
And I'd be willing to bet that I'm not the only one who thinks this way. There's just something deeply human in us, isn't there, uh, that loves to see these kinds of stories so that the boundaries of what we thought possible are pushed out and expanded so that we can learn that lesson that we should strive for more. We should strive for something more excellent. Now, great examples of these stories abound, and we could spend all morning reflecting on many of them. We could think, for example, of the the story of Apollo 11 landing on the moon, being the first to put human beings on the surface. We could think of the successful evacuation of over 300,000 troops from Dunkirk uh, in the early stages of World War II. The great movie on that a few years ago depicted that very artfully. Uh, We could also even think of the Chicago Cubs winning the 2016 World Series. Uh, All of these things sound impossible at first, but in fact, they came true. The list goes on. And the reason we love these kinds of stories is simple as finite creatures bounded as we are by constraints like time and space and matter. We love to be reminded that sometimes even our most unlikely dreams are in fact attainable. And there's even some old sayings that we have and often will throw around in order to promote this sense amongst one another, right? We will often say things like, well, where there's a will, there's a way. Or if you can dream it, you can do it. These sorts of sayings we we throw around so that we can continue to live as though there's nothing quite impossible. And I think we in the modern world are quite prone to this kind of optimistic outlook. We like it. We we subscribe to it, especially those of us in the United States, a nation that prides itself on having established itself through grittiness and unbridled ambition. Uh, The air we breathe, aside from, you might say, the occasional smoke of the forest fires in our country right now, is the air of progress. It's the air of development. It's the air of moving forward into something better. We are a people, then, that are deeply convinced by the sense, by the notion, that there are logical, rational, uh, discoverable solutions to some of the greatest problems known to our race. And so we think that we can simply figure them out, and we will easily then be able to pass them on. And this, of course, is a wonderful thing. It's a good thing that humans have this innate desire to improve the world around us. It's a good thing to go in search of answers to our great questions. I'm thinking of things like cancer or of hunger or even, again, of deep space exploration, pressing beyond what our limits are. And I think in all of this, we are fulfilling what we famously know of as the cultural mandate in Genesis one twenty eight, right? Where the Lord calls Adam to have dominion over all things and to steward the earth's resources by creating and, and moving forward. But be this as it may, all of this uh, optimism that we have, I think that in the modern world, in the 21st century, one of the things that we still feel exasperated by, something we feel like maybe it will just never happen, is the problem of racial division and animosity. This is one that, especially in recent years, has become incredibly vexing and difficult and for, to even think about how to attempt to solve it. But as far as I can tell, there have come to be two different ways of approaching this problem. 
Two different ways in our culture that we see quite often. We might call the first one the dystopian approach. This is the approach of those who have settled on the belief that for whatever reason, it just ain't gonna happen. And so, for those in this category, the amount of pain or social disruption or personal discouragement they've experienced from the years of even trying is enough to make them despair. They've spent decades trying. They've spent decades trying to figure out solutions to this. And so it just seems at the end of it often that this whole venture is impossible. And it leads then to despair and to disillusionment. Then typically I think what happens here in this approach is that by giving up, it leads to a sort of live and let live ethos where me and my tribe will do our thing over here and you and your tribe, your people can do your thing over there. And as long as we sort of have some surface level uh, peace, then things will be okay. And so the idea is we're not going to have real unity, but we'll at least have a little bit of superficial peace between us. Then there are those who believe that something can be done. And not only do they believe that something can be done, but they think that doing so will be fairly easy. We might call this group then the utopian approach. Uh, And while this optimism is, of course, commendable, I think this group generally goes wrong because of one fatal flaw. What we might call then an insufficient anthropology or an understanding of who we are as human creatures, what it means to be truly human. And we can see this in the way that we in the modern world so often tend to think so highly of ourselves as morally good creatures. And this means that we tend to see our morally wrong behaviors, evidence not of our own fault, but really of a corrupting society that influences us negatively. And so in other words, our modern view is that humans are essentially born good and that it's our society that corrupts us from the outside. It causes us to learn and to imbibe and then to exhibit behaviors and habits that are not only unhealthy for us, but more so unhealthy for those around us. And this view, as it turns back, turns out, goes back at least as far as to the 18th century uh, in a book that uh, our Sunday school read about a year ago now. uh, We discovered that you can really kind of pinpoint a lot of this kind of thinking on an 18th century French romantic philosopher named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And I would argue that now we in the modern world, whether we know it or not, are disciples of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. It's a fun name to say. He essentially taught that we were, we were good, and it's only those outside of us that just make us bad. We learn and inherit systems, and so we learn things, and therefore the thinking goes, we can unlearn things. And if you're wondering, the answer is yes. This view of our being morally good is in pure, open contrast to the classical Christian belief in original sin, where we must recognize that we are not born morally good, but we are born morally sinful and wicked. And it's important to recognize all of this because when it comes then to the problem of racial division and hatred in our world, there are many today who rather naively think that uh, if hating people is a learned thing, then it can be something we can unlearn. 
If it's something that we've merely picked up from the world, then it's something we can simply choose to put down. And so babies, they say, or they would say, they'd say babies are born loving other babies of all other skin colors and all other features. And so it's not until they develop because of our society and then they learn to hate other children. And so it's because it's learned, they say, it can be unlearned. How, might we ask? How do we unlearn it? I think the answer often comes back is simply through education, through trainings, through modules, through the system of our schools. All we have to do, they would say, is teach people not to be racist. And so, motivated then by this insufficient anthropology, we're now witnessing an incredible rise of so-called anti-racism training and curriculum and workshops in our world. But hear me when I say this. Educating people not to be racist is a good thing to do. We absolutely should be teaching people that racism is a wicked evil. It is something that is directly opposed to the image of God in all people. It's a good thing, then, to teach ourselves and our children not to have racist thoughts, actions, or deeds, but to instead love our neighbors. This is all good because being racist is a blasphemous violation of God's very good creation. So I have no problem whatsoever with people wanting to teach that racism is wrong. My contention then is that this desire is not the problem, but it's the naive belief that mere education, simply education, will be the solution to this great and evil problem of racism in our world. It's not something we're going to be able to overcome simply by reading a stack of books or by taking certain workshops or listening just to the stories and experiences of others, as important as these may be. No, racism, the unconscious or conscious hatred of other people whose external features are different than our own, is a far, far deeper problem than that. It lies not just in our hatred of their skin, but it lies in our hearts. If we're going to have any hope, not just of getting rid of it, but of living in true peace and harmony with our neighbors, even neighbors that look differently than we do, neighbors of different tribes and nations and tongues, we're going to have to find a deeper solution. Because again, this problem is not skin deep. It's a problem that goes far beyond our skin, all the way to our hearts. And so what's the solution? Where must we turn for hope? The answer is that there's not an easy solution, so we shouldn't be trite. But there is the Word of God, and we ought to turn there. And there's no better place in His Word, I would argue, than this passage this morning, which lays this open for us and invites us to consider the ways in which God has masterfully and beautifully put people together into the one body of Christ. And so as we saw last week, the point of verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2 were to show that Christ is uh, building a people. It's God's grand people in Christ, and it's his workmanship. It's his masterpiece. Those are the words I've been throwing around. He wants us to, to see this, Paul does. And so because he uses the word therefore at the beginning of our passage this morning, verse 11, therefore... I would suggest that we read this morning's passage as a further exploration of this theme of God showing off his masterpiece. 
Paul has just told us that the church is God's work. So now in verses 11 and 12, he's going to show us exactly what this work looks like. And as he does, what we'll come to see is that in creating this masterpiece, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings has now in his son accomplished something that up to this point in time, all the world felt was deeply impossible. And so to do this, Paul begins by beckoning his readers to remember, to remember, to reflect back on their past. So he says in verse 11 and following, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. You can get the exclusivism that he's using here. They were excluded. He says in verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Just like he did in the previous passage in verses 1 through 10, so too here Paul begins with calling his readers to think back upon the utter darkness that they were living in prior to the intervention of the Lord and to now compare and contrast that with the utter light that has come in from the gospel of God. And so he begins then, uh, as he begins, Paul specifies who he is talking to in this Ephesian congregation. He's not talking clearly to the Jews. He's talking, obviously, to the Gentiles in the flesh in this congregation. All those, who, he says, who are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Now, for Gentiles in this church being referred to as Gentiles, it would have felt a little bit strange, perhaps. For them... They would have seen themselves as the normal ones. We're sort of the normal, everyday, Greco-Roman citizens of the Roman Empire. We're Greek-speaking. We're kind of the cultural majority. And it was these Jews who were the weird ones. They were the monotheists. They were the isolationists. They were the sort of we-hate-everything-about-the-Roman-Empire kind of people. And so they're the, they're the different ones. But Paul's words here are clear. As it pertains to the salvation provided now by God, it was the Gentiles who were to see themselves as the outsiders, not the Jews. And so he calls them once again to remember who they were. He even says in verse 19 that they were formerly strangers and aliens. But now he wants to know, he wants, wants them to know that they have been saved and rescued by God's intervention. They were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, all of this in verse 12, having no hope and without God in the world. It's quite a bleak scenario that he paints of their past, simply because of their Gentileness. And this is a multi-layered assertion of their lostness. And it's basically an all-encompassing way of articulating their utter misery prior to Christ. And so we could go into each of the five phrases that Paul stacks up in order to describe exactly what this misery looked like. But the essential point of the matter is that without Christ, the Gentiles were in a state of spiritual darkness, complete spiritual darkness. And this is an essential point for us to grasp in our day as well, because unless we ourselves are circumcised Jews, and I personally don't know anyone in this congregation who is a Jew, 
God bless you if you are, then this is our status as well. This is who we were prior to coming to know Christ. All of these phrases that Paul heaps up in verse 12 can be applied to us. Whether we are Dutch or Hispanic, Chinese or Japanese, uh, Filipino, Russian, Ukrainian, black or white, whatever it may be, you have to recognize that given your non-Jewish ancestry, you are privileged to now be called simply a son or a daughter of God. So as the saying goes... The old great saying, it's, it's a simple saying, but it's so true. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. None of us, therefore, ought to feel as though salvation is something that belongs first and foremost to our people and only to others then as special ones, as they're the outsiders and they're lucky to be here. If anything, this feast is a feast that belongs to the Jews And not to the Gentiles. And so we are all the ones who are equally privileged to be here. And this is precisely the point, after all, of the parable that the Lord himself tells us and gives to us in Matthew 22. Where he's talking about a parable of a king who has a son who's having a wedding feast. And he invites people to come to this wedding feast and they reject him. And so we see this in verses 8 through 10. They reject his invitation, so he responds, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. I think what he's talking about here is the Jews who rejected him. Go therefore, says the king, to the main roads and invite the wedding feast as many as you find. And so, doing what they were told, those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. We are those guests. That's the simple fact of the matter. We are the ones who have been called from the highways and the byways to come to the feast of the king and of his son. We are the blessed ones to be here. We are privileged guests. And so now in verses 13 through 18, Paul begins to turn his attention to showing us exactly what Christ has done in in order to reverse our status as Gentiles who were formerly covenant outsiders. And it's here in these words that the greatest solution to racial division and animosity is revealed and put forth. And it comes, as it were, like a beam descending from heaven onto the darkness of our divided earth. And so we should read it very carefully. It begins in verse 13 with these great words. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Just as we saw last week with verses with verse 4, excuse me, but God, that, that great moment of those two words descending upon the difficult and bad situation of the Ephesians' sin, so too here now, Paul goes from telling us what our former, former situation used to look like and now telling us what it looks like in Christ. We have been brought near by his blood. And so given that the portrait that Paul paints here is, is to divide... Uh, these people. He he paints a divided portrait between those who were God's people and those who were not God's people. This was theologically a much further divide uh, between the Jews and the Gentiles than between any of the divides of the Gentiles themselves. 
The implication then is clear. If Jews and Gentiles are now reconciled and brought near in Christ, how much more then can all the various categories of Gentiles be brought near and reconciled to Christ as well? So here again, we can see how the doctrine of union with Christ, of our oneness with Christ, is the machinery doing all the heavy lifting of this great salvation we've been given. For those who are by faith in Christ, all of our other identity markers and our allegiances and our commitments are now given a backseat. They're put behind us, as it were. Our race, our gender, our social class, our lines of work, our family backgrounds, our cultural affiliations, even our subcultural affiliations. We put all of those behind us now. Those, those have been placed behind us. They've been forcefully relativized and put in the back seat. Now, in comparison to our new identity that we share together in Christ, this is the grand and glorious truth of the gospel. And so notice then that it's his blood that does this. We've been brought near by his blood, he says. We might then say that by the washing of this blood, by the purification that we've all gone through, and by the payment he has made for us all with his blood, that he has marked us with his people. He has put his sign on all of us. We are thereby pushing all of our other identity markers to the backstage. And so we can begin to see how this racial reconciliation, this radical reconciliation begins to happen with our new identity. And it's exactly what Paul wrote to the Galatian church in Galatians 3, verse 28, where he famously said, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so in Christ as those who have now all been united to him by faith through the power of the Spirit, we are one. And this grand reality leads us right into the continued explanation given in verse 14 and continuing, where Paul says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Again, that word peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, part of what Paul's saying here won't make perfect sense unless we kind of go back and understand this religious context of first, the first century world near Ephesus. At the time of the letter's writing, which is probably around the year 61 or 62 AD, the famous temple in Jerusalem still stood. Uh, the Jerusalem temple uh, would stand up until the year 70 AD when it would be destroyed in a very important part of world history. So the temple, however, was the central focus of the entire Jewish religion. It was the place where all the major sacrifices and offerings would happen. It was the place where in the Holy of Holies, inside of the golden building, uh, the priest would go in and he would make the, uh, the Passover sacrifice, which was sort of the, the high point of Israel's year. And so because the temple was understood to be holy ground, though, there were 
restrictions regarding who could go in and who could go in how far into its courts. And so Jewish men, we could see, are actually allowed to come into what's called the court of the Israelites. The court of the Israelites, which was the closest uh, court to the front of the temple. The, the temple itself is that gold building which has various rooms inside. The holy place and then the holy of holies, or the most holy place. And so men, circumcised Jewish men, were allowed to go into the court of the Israelites to sort of get an upfront uh, seat, a front row seat, if you will, to observe the temple proceedings that happened day to day. Secondly, we can see that behind this is the court of women, the court of women, where Jewish women were allowed to go. So there's a segregation taking place between men and women. And so the women were allowed to stand in this court and to observe through that gate. You can see in the middle there, they could sort of see what was happening, but they were behind the men. But outside the temple is the court of the Gentiles which was a space then designated for God-fearing Gentiles, those who had uh, committed themselves to the Jewish faith but weren't uh, themselves circumcised and weren't uh, noticeably Jewish. They were still very Gentile. And this court was marked off by a four and a half foot wall that surrounded the entire temple complex. And you can see that with the highlights around it. So this wall marks off how far the Gentiles can go in. And if you've been with us for our evening services over the past few weeks, we can see that we've been looking our way through Acts, and we've actually come into the story of Paul going to the temple. And he's in the temple uh, participating in a purification sacrifice, taking a Nazarite vow with a few other Christian Jewish men. And so he's showing that he uh, still upholds the law, the, the traditions, and still respects them. But he's arrested, and he's actually... Uh, accused of bringing a Greek man named Trophimus from Ephesians into the temple, or from Ephesus, excuse me, into the temple. So they they, uh, falsely accuse him that he's brought a Gentile in. And so he's so pro-Gentile that he's even bringing them into a place that they should not come. And so this is an interesting thing, is they they accuse him of bringing this Gentile in past this yellow, highlighted, dividing wall. And interestingly, in the 1930s, an archaeologist working in Jerusalem discovered a fragment of this wall with an inscription on it that read as follows. No man of another nation, any Gentile, may enter within this wall and enclosure around this temple. Whoever is caught will be responsible for his ensuing death. So it was punishable by death for a Gentile to approach the temple complex. So Paul's words then in this section which we've read, are clear. Through the cross, Christ has broken down this dividing wall of hostility. Previously, the Gentiles were not allowed to enter closely to the presence of the Almighty. But now, through Christ, we have been brought near to God. This wall has been broken down. And so, as the Anglican theologian Armitage Robinson once put it, the wall still stood at the time of Paul's writing this letter. But it was already antiquated, obsolete, out of date, so far as its spiritual meaning went. The sign still stood, but the thing signified was broken down. And so by breaking down this wall of hostility, Christ brought the Gentiles into the covenant people 
of God. Or as Paul tells us in verse 15, he created in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He brought us all together and he made peace. So we can reflect a little bit on this word now, peace, an important word. To the Ephesian audience, this word peace would have had all sorts of interesting connotations along with it. For them, it was closely connected to the so-called Roman peace, the Pax Romana, which was about the peace of the Roman Empire that was brought about, they said, uh, through just maintaining peace throughout this known empire. It was maintained across the Mediterranean world. And so with this peace, which was a great peace in some ways, uh, it, it, it actually made the Roman empire, empire so great and influential because it allowed for trade activity to happen. And so the economy was able to, to take a huge boost. And there was a common set of laws. There was a common language, Greek. There was a common cult religion. And even if your people were conquered, you'd be, they'd be, your gods would be added into the pantheon of the Roman gods. And so you could sort of make peace. There was a great pluralism. But this was just the thing. The Roman peace was a peace won and attained and defended through violence. Conquered peoples could be added to the mix, but then they would simply just be pacified and placated and asked to join in the great commercial wealth of all the trade that was able to take place. And so by contrast to all of this, Paul shows us that the peace won by Christ came not through killing or conquering his neighbors and enemies, but through the sacrifice of his own blood on their behalf. He laid down his life for us. And this is how he then killed the hostility that existed between us. He didn't kill us. He didn't kill his enemies. He died himself and killed the hostility and brought true peace not the mere imitation of it, allowing for trade to foreign lands. And so now that we've seen Paul's explanation of what it was that Christ accomplished for us on the cross, we might finally be led to the all-important question, so what? So what? What is God up to in bringing peace? Not just between the Jews and the Gentiles, but between all the peoples and all the nations of the earth. What was God Attempting. And the answer, as we've seen it in verse 19 and 11, or 19 through 22, excuse me, is that he is building for himself a new temple, one in which his presence will now dwell for all eternity. Unlike that old temple, which is now outdated and antiquated, it was simply a precursor to the temple that has now come in the church. But this new temple, unlike that now obsolete one back in Jerusalem, is not one built with walls and stones of matter. It's built instead with the glorious accumulation of what Peter calls living stones. God's people, you might say, hewn from all the quarries and nations of the world and put together into a magnificent spiritual building. People from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. He has brought us all together to be fellow citizens with the saints, with the holy ones, and members of the household of God. I hear well-meaning Christians all the time declare that the church isn't a building. It's a people. And of course, they're right as far as it goes. The church is not just this building that we're currently sitting in. It's a people. It's all of us. So fair enough. 
But given Paul's words here, it's actually maybe truer to say that the church isn't just a building. It is a people, but it's a people being made into a building. A building where God's presence resides and is made known, again, to the powers of the world. And so as we saw last week, the mission of the church is to glorify God. It's to depict and show His glory. We are completely His doing, His masterpiece. So as it turns out, we are not just a 2D, monochromatic, one-color masterpiece, but we are a 3D, multicolored temple, shining with all the beauty and iridescence of the colors of the nations of the earth. And maybe you've not yet caught it so far, but from the way Paul has worded and written this passage, it's clear that he's not saying that this is something that should be taking place among us. Something we should all strive towards and work towards. Racial unity. As if it could something that could ultimately just be achieved through good effort, through, through trying really hard. As we've seen, education isn't fundamentally the answer to this problem. Now, instead, it's clear from the way he's written this passage is that he is telling us that the good news, telling us that God has already joined us together and put us into the church. Christ has already achieved it. And so whether we know it or not, in Christ, we are all one. That is the beauty of the gospel. Unity is not something to be achieved by us, but it's something to be lived into and celebrated uh, for what God has already done. 